Hey, Scott. Yes, Adam. Would you like a two-bite brownie? Not today. Broadcasting to you almost live from a community hockey rink. This is the Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. And we are your hosts. Joining us in the studio today is a singular man, a young sports journalist who works for 630 Ched here in Edmonton, Mr. Dan Tenser. Let's be careful with the word journalist, though. I, I suppose some aspects of my job do include journalism, but for the most part, the shows that I host have my name on them and thus are more about my opinion than they are about balance. So I am uh, 95% of the time not concerned about balance. I certainly want to present accurate facts, but that's the extent of what I would call journalism in, in my job description. And Dan is definitely an opinionated young man. And on that note, uh, one of the main reasons we asked Dan to be on the show today, and thank you, Dan, for coming on the show, as you have a very busy schedule this time of year, is because of the very time of year it is, mm-hmm. it is the beginning of hockey season. And it's about damn time. I yes. think I speak for at least three people here, <laughs> and all ten of our listeners. Um, really looking forward to the hockey season, in spite of the fact that not a whole lot has changed, at least roster-wise, for the Edmonton Oilers. So, Dan, uh, you've been following the developments over the summer, and you're an opinionated guy. How the hell are the Oilers going to do this year? That's a great question. I think, uh, you know, back to your point about the roster not changing, I think it's an incredible gamble that the Oilers management team has taken. And I don't think it's a gamble that they took willingly. They certainly tried to change the roster. Um, Obviously, with the Danny Heatley thing, that would have been, you know, you don't get too many opportunities to acquire a player of that magnitude. So that would have been a significant change. And they sniffed around a couple of other things. But the fact of the matter is, over the last... uh, say, three off-seasons, really, since going to the Stanley Cup Final, uh, they've given out a lot of money, and they've put themselves in a, uh, despite the salary cap continuing to go up every year since the lockout, uh, they've put themselves in a pretty precarious situation in terms of the salary cap. They've got a lot of contracts, uh, 48 to be precise, and they've got a lot of money spent. Right now, they're a little bit over the salary cap. Uh, so uh, from that angle, it's not like they could just go out and be a player in free agency and pick up whoever they wanted to, uh, so they really had to focus doing a trade, and as we find out, uh, trade's extremely hard to make in a salary cap era. Um, so, I mean, look, this is a team of players, a roster of players that, you know, by and large underachieved spectacularly last year. And that being said, they ended up not far out of a playoff spot. You look at, you know, where they were with 10 or 11 games to go, they were actually four points up on a playoff spot. They, were, they had a four-point cushion over ninth spot, which, as Sean Horkoff reminded all of us today, uh, is the best position that they'd been in in years in a playoff race, and they choked it. They won just three of their final 11 games. So despite the roster of players you know, really having average to below average years with the exception of, you know, guys like Sheldon Surrey and Dwayne Rolison, I thought Andrew Cogliano had a very nice year last year too, they were still right in the mix. Now, if they could do that again and have even small improvements from everybody or, you know, in a perfect world, dramatic improvements from everybody, I suppose you could argue that um, they could compete for a division, I guess, in theory, because that's what everybody was talking about last year. And this roster is basically identical. I happen to think that this team is a playoff team. Uh, I don't think they're a playoff team by a lot, uh, but somewhere between you know, sixth and eighth place in the playoffs. And if it doesn't go well, like last year 
didn't go well, they could very easily find themselves on the outside looking in, um, with the caveat being we don't know what the coaching change is worth. That's what I was asking guys today. Is it worth four points out of the box? Is it worth six points out of the box? What's the coaching change worth? And you don't know. Maybe it's not worth anything because ultimately they can't put on the skates and make the plays. So maybe it's worth nothing. Uh, maybe it's worth a ton. So we'll have to see. I think it's an incredible gamble. If it was up to me and it was a perfect world and I could just slap things together like I can in my video game, the roster would look a lot different than it did at the end of last season. But they have what they have. I think they're very capable of being a playoff team. Um, but I don't think they're, uh, you know, I, I don't think they're much more or, or much less than being right in the heat of that playoff race again. Now, I have done a, uh, a very careful simulation going into this hockey season where I took the uh, best program that I could find with all of the best statistics and the best algorithms. And NHL 09 told me that the New Jersey Devils were going to win this year. Who do you think is going to win the Stanley Cup this year? Oh, boy. Well, I'll tell you, um, I might sound stupid for saying this because they screwed me over again in my draft pool, or pardon me, in my playoff pool. San Jose Sharks look scary good. Um, they make the trade for Danny Heatley, which is totally just giving up on the part of Brian Murray and the Ottawa Senators, just saying, fine, we're just going to freaking trade him to somebody. Uh, they got back just terrible value for this player, in my estimation. Now, if Chichu goes into Ottawa and scores 40 goals, that shuts me up pretty quickly if he plays with Daniel Alfredson and recaptures his form. But the Sharks have uh, Joe Thornton and Patrick Marlowe uh, and and now Danny Heatley offensively. They've got a back end that scores a ton of points, led by Danny Boyle, who's a great leader as well. And their goaltending with Evgeny Nabokov, if he can stay healthy, is fantastic. Uh, the coaching change, Todd McClellan only had one year, so perhaps it takes you know, a little bit more time for his philosophy and his systems work and all the rest of that to, to get put into play. Uh, so in terms of just talent on paper, they were a dominant regular season team last year. And I totally choked in the playoffs. Totally choked again in the playoffs. And to be quite frank, um, I don't know how much longer Patrick Marlowe is going to be a San Jose Shark, so I expect them to make that change at some point too. Uh, but you look at what they have on paper, uh, find it very hard to pick against San Jose. Obviously the Detroit Red Wings, Chicago Blackhawks will be an interesting question, whether or not they're able to get back to where they were last year and, and continue to take strides. I think the Vancouver Canucks have a very good hockey team this year. I know I'm giving you a lot of teams here, but uh, Vancouver is, I, I think, a, a much improved team. I think they're going to be better offensively. Uh, Mikael Samuelson has a pickup to play with the Sedin Twins. I thought was a great signing. Um um, by Mike Gillis out there. And in terms of the Eastern Conference, uh, again, pretty wide open. New Jersey's going to have a good team. Pittsburgh, obviously. Uh, the Washington Capitals uh, are a team that's going to be, you know, again, poised to, like the Chicago Blackhawks, I think, if they can kind of get over that hump, take a big step forward. Um, that conference has been, for the last number of years, very wide open. The Boston Bruins are a very good team. Again, Montreal, if they could, they certainly have a, a, a boatload of talent there. Um, but I'd say if you were asking me right now who's going to be in the Stanley Cup final again, I really like uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins again. I like the San Jose Sharks out of the West and, you know, toss it up when you get there. But, I mean, it's haven't even played a game yet, and uh, I, I can't even pick it once the regular season is over, let alone before the regular season starts. <laughs> So what do you think it would take for the Edmonton Oilers to be real Stanley Cup contenders? I mean, what specific things do they need to fix this year in order to not completely uh, the bed, if I may say? Well, Cates has a lot of money, so you know, a time machine to take us back 25 years would help out a lot. 
I'm sure he's working on it. That R and D department. Of yeah, his. A, a time machine to go back uh, to you know 1986 or something would be wonderful. Um, Goaltending, they'll be fine. Um, Unless Bullen injures himself. Yeah, if he if he stays healthy, he'll be fine. I I don't I don't like that contract. I've been very, you know, and and Steve Tambellini and I have have gotten into this. Um, on a couple of different occasions. I don't like the contract. I think the first two years of the contract will be fine. I expect him to play well. He's a he's a good goaltender. Uh, but considering what you could have done, the different options, whether it would have been a Craig Anderson or a Martin Biron or even re-signing Dwayne Rolison to spend $15 million in four years on a 36-year-old goaltender when you've got two guys that are at the very least nipping at the heels of playing in the NHL. That'd be Delorier and Dubnik. And I would expect Dubnik to challenge at least um, Delorier for the backup job this year. I think, I mean, Dubnik was one of the top three goalies in the American League last year. So I, I think he's closer than maybe some people expect. And Delorier is a guy that they've put a lot of time and a lot of commitment into. And like hell, Nikolai Habibulin is going to be riding the pine when he's making $15 million over four years. So... I, I question that signing, but they'll be fine in goal unless he gets injured. Um, on the defense, they're right up there with San Jose Sharks and the Chicago Blackhawks in terms of producing offense from the blue line. Uh, if they stay healthy, no issues on defense. I think when you put Laddie Schmid and Steve Steos in there, uh, Dennis Grebeshkov I think is a lot better defensively than people give him credit for. He was their top plus-minus player last year. Uh, second half of the season, he was the best defensive player on the team. I think Sheldon Surrey is better defensively than he gets credit for as well. So I don't see any issues on the blue line. So that leads into the forward core, um, which is the area where I would make uh, changes. Obviously more scoring. Um, they need somebody on that top line left wing that could put the puck in the net. Maybe it's Mike Comrie. Maybe Dustin Penner no longer eating Sour Patch Kids or drinking wheat-based drinks. Maybe he's going to uh, play on the top line and be able to produce. Uh, maybe it's Patrick O'Sullivan. Um, but I think they need something more proven there. Uh, they didn't replace Kyle Brodziak, um, and that was after they already knew that they would need to improve even with Brodziak there in the face-off dot. They only had two guys that were over 50% last year. I'm extremely concerned, and I talked to Pat Quinn about it today, and he's concerned too, about the ability of the team to win a face-off. Uh, and you're expecting Sean Horkoff to be your top-line center. You need, at least right now they are, you need him to get back to his offensive numbers, which is going to be hard for him because he's going to be out there particularly late in games uh, having to take every important face-off that the team has, um, try to win the draw, uh, get the puck out, get to the bench, and then 20 seconds later go on on the top line and try to produce points, which is a very uncomfortable and, quite frankly, unfair situation for Sean Horkoff if they don't get anybody else that can win a draw. And the other thing is size. Um, and they've got you know at least 20 guys vying for a job here in training camp. So the potential to have J.F. Jacques make the team as an example, or the potential to have Zach Stortini and Steve McIntyre on the team. Um, obviously, they have the potential to get a little bit bigger, but a lot bigger, uh, I, I don't think so. Um, so I'd like to see them have a little bit more size in their top six, but 
You know, that's just based on last year where the skill didn't perform. So if the skill performs this year, that probably shuts me up in terms of wanting size. The bottom six is fine. You've got Ethan Morrow there. You've got, um, you know, Stortini at least on the fourth line. Maybe have Jacques on the team. Uh, Brule is going to play this year. He's got some grit. So I think they're pretty set in terms of grit in their, in their bottom six. But I'd like to see a little bit more size in the top six. Uh, so now that we've had this big coaching change and everyone's very hopeful that that one major change is going to make a huge difference this year, is do you get a sense talking to the players that there's a lot more excitement about going yeah. into the season as opposed to, you know, continuing on with things with Craig McTavish? Yeah, the, the word that's most often used is uh, stale, and it just got stale. And the players, um, you know, they don't talk publicly about it, but there were a number of them that went in uh, to see Steve Tambellini after the season and their exit interviews and, I mean, basically relayed the message of whatever is supposed to be there wasn't there this year, whether it's, you know, the, you talk about the culture of what it is to be an oiler or the energy in the room or the attitude or however you want to phrase it, it just wasn't there last year. And uh, a lot of the guys felt that the coaching staff had just not not turned stupid, but maybe worn out their welcome in a way just because they had been here for so long. So I don't expect Pat Quinn and Tom Rennie to come in and dramatically change the system. I mean, how could they? They have basically the same roster. They cannot, I mean, they could play in a, a more aggressive game, but you're not going to run anybody through the boards with the top six forwards that they have. So you want them to be a little bit more tenacious in their pursuit of the puck when they don't have it. But you know, really the system I think is going to look very much the same. The blue line is the same. You can't ask those guys to, you know, stay at home and chip it off the glass and get it out. You're going to be trying to move the puck from your back end, and that's just the way it is. So I think the system is going to very much look the same. Uh, hopefully uh, Tom Rennie can do something with the penalty kill, which is one area where they do really need to shore things up. Uh, but in terms of the attitude, yeah, I, I think uh, the players are very excited that the change was made. I think they're very excited to work with the quality of coaching staff they have now with Pat Quinn and Tom Reddy and Wayne Fleming. It's a very beefy staff, a very experienced staff, and a staff that comes in and commands a lot of respect. So I think there's um, an eagerness to get going and to see, you know, as much as we're all interested in seeing how Dustin Penner reacts and how Robert Nielsen reacts, I think Dustin Penner's really interested to see what happens, and Robert Nielsen's really interested to see what happens. And I don't want to say that they're giddy, but they're certainly really positive about getting going here and really positive about the fact that um, that they've got a chance to be grouped together again with some new guidance and a little bit more, I don't know if you want to call it energy, coming from the coaching staff because I think the players should provide their own energy, but um, certainly a, a better attitude inside the dressing room just because of the optics of the change. So, uh, yeah, I definitely uh, definitely feel a difference from the players and feel a genuine excitement. Now is the uh, is the style of coaching dramatically different uh, from when McTavish was uh, was calling the shots? Uh, that'll be interesting because you know Craig McTavish last year was he aged last year, and you could really tell um, being around him every day that there was just stuff that started to grate on his nerves. I think you could even see it just watching you, totally, television. You for could. Sure. I mean, it, it, he was. Never short with the media. He was always, uh, all the way through to the end, extremely cordial to deal with. But, I mean, you look last year going after Dustin Penner, going after Robert Nielsen, going after Rob Shrimp. Um, he was just a little bit quicker to be critical. 
um, and a little bit quicker to be sharp-tongued. And I'd, I don't think that went over really well with those players, obviously. Um, and Pat Quinn is... This is an interesting dynamic, and I, I'm interested to see how it plays out because I could imagine Pat Quinn doing the same thing because Pat Quinn is no BS. So I could imagine Pat Quinn after a game where, you know, insert player X is minus three and plays a terrible hockey. I could imagine Pat Quinn standing up and going, yeah, he sucked tonight. He was terrible tonight, and if he doesn't change, he's going to have his ass up in the press box, and that's the way it's going to be. You know, we talked, uh, I, I remember talking to him the day that he got the job, and I brought up Dustin Penner, and I said, you know, what about a guy like Dustin Penner, you know, sometimes, you know, has trouble getting his work ethic going and has trouble, you know, really playing consistently for 60 minutes, 82 nights a year, he says, well, he better, because if he doesn't, he's going to be playing somewhere else, and that's just the way it's going to be. So uh, I think Pat Quinn's tolerance for BS is extremely low. Um, but, I mean, this is a guy who has coached for a long, long time. He's coached at a bunch of different levels. He's coached internationally. He's handled all-star teams. He's handled Olympic teams. Um, he's handled world junior teams. So he's I, I, I defer to him in terms of knowing whether his team needs a pat on the butt or a kick in the butt in terms of, you know, where they're at over the course of the season. And I talked to him about that today as well. And he said he's, you know, he's going to gauge it. And I, I don't think he's going to be afraid um, to give guys uh, the how-to if, if he thinks they need to be better, whether or not he'll do it publicly like Craig McTavish did last year, I guess, remains to be seen. So um, I guess in answer to your question, uh, I see Pat Quinn um, more than anything just instilling that sense of accountability inside the dressing room that Craig McTavish ultimately wasn't able to do because I, I think he had just been here too long. I still think Mac is a great coach, and he's going to go somewhere, and he's going to win a bunch of games somewhere else. Um, but he was just here too long, and I think Pat Quinn coming in with the stature and the automatic respect that he commands, I think the message that he's trying to get across will be heard very loudly and very clearly. You mentioned uh, Mac T going somewhere else. I'd heard a rumor uh, that he had been picked up by TSN as a commentator or an analyst or some such. Uh, is there any truth to that? I've heard the same rumor. Um, TSN hasn't announced anything. Um, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. He'd be great at it. Um, I always got the sense that not sure he'd like it. Um, he doesn't. The one thing that Mag never liked to do, um, and he opened up, I remember being out in Sherwood Park at Millennium Place one day, with about 20 games to go in the season, and it was the first time in the three years that I'd been covering the team that he opened about uh, opened up about himself at all. Um, he doesn't like talking about himself. He doesn't like talking about his style of coaching. So on a panel where, you know, it's what would you do or how would you respond to this, I just can't imagine. I would imagine him being very uncomfortable there. Uh, but, I mean, you, I mean, anybody that follows the Oilers pregame and postgame stuff, you go back to the Stanley Cup final, I mean, the guy's just gold. So in terms of what you're looking for, if you're a TV or a radio guy, he's an absolute quote machine. He's extremely intelligent, very articulate. So if TSN does pick him up, it would be a wonderful acquisition for them. And a guy, quite frankly, uh, like John Tortorella, I think would probably sit on the panel for less than a full season because I think he'll be one of the first phone calls for just about every job that comes available in the National Hockey League. So you've been, uh, you said you've been following the team for three years now. Um, the players are excited. Maybe Pat Quinn's, you know, looking forward to the season. As someone who's followed the team, what are your? Th do you feel like you're really looking forward to seeing some cool hockey this year? 
you know, the one thing with this job, and it's it's disappointing to a certain degree. Um, you know, growing up, loved the team, absolutely lived and died with them. Um, you know, all the days, just like everybody else, screaming at the TV and hooting and hollering in the basement and all the rest of that. And we had season tickets growing up and going to all the games. And um, that just that, that pure unbridled emotion that comes along with following the team. And then you get into the job and you are, are forced to think about it. You, you have to watch the game differently than you do because, quite frankly, the average fan is, you know, whether of those 17,000 people that go to Rexall Place, I think you'd have an extremely high percentage of them that would say, I would be willing to sit through 41 crappy games a year if we won 30 of them. It's just the wins and the losses that end up mattering. Um, when you watch it from my perspective, you got to what you know the penalty kill, you got the power play. You, you watch it from a much more analytical perspective, uh, which quite frankly takes a lot of the fun out of it. And then you factor in working on the broadcast, being in the press box, all the rest of that. I haven't cheered for a goal in three years, with the exception of. Uh, when the team is on the road and I'm sitting in this studio with Rob Brown watching it, then, you know, uh, have no problem admitting that from time to time I get pretty emotional one way or the other. Um, so I am a lot less of a fan than I was three years ago. Um, so I I don't feel myself getting excited like I used to. I mean, three years ago, um, after another long summer and the hockey season finally starts again, I would be, you know, I'd have the flags on my car, I'd be wearing my jersey to work every day and going crazy to just, you know, see some preseason hockey. But at this point, it's like, all right, season is starting again. I'm very happy that on a day-to-day basis, my job is, you know, instead of putzing around the office, doing office work, which quite frankly is what I do for most of the summer, trying to keep busy and fill three hours, um, being down at the rink, um, talking to the players. I do really enjoy that part of it, but excitement doesn't really play into it. Now, I haven't covered the playoffs yet because the three years I've been here, the three seasons that I've done it, the team has missed the playoffs every season. So heading into my fourth season covering the team, I would imagine that that excitement would come back if it were a playoff uh, a playoff series. So... Um, Excited, no, uh, but looking forward to it just in terms of, you know, the job and, and how my job changes during hockey season. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hope that the law of averages says that uh, this is the year for playoffs, unless, again, the bed that I alluded to. Well, it's just so damn hard. I mean, that's the, that's the thing, right? I mean, you look at the Western Conference right now, it's so freaking good. I mean, um, the Columbus Blue Jackets, St. Louis Blues, um, the Los Angeles Kings. I think right now, if I was making a chart, I might have to put the Kings in the playoffs based on the changes that they've made. And that was a, a team that, you know, if they can have their goaltending stay steady, and I happen to think Dean Lombardi's a genius, um, I think that's a team that's absolutely in the right direction. I think they they might be ready to actually, you know, crack the barrier this year and make the playoffs from top to bottom in the West right now. Um, yeah, the Phoenix Coyotes are going to be brutal. The Colorado Avalanche are going to be brutal. The Nashville Predators, I mean, somehow Barry Trotz always seems to get his team somewhere near the playoffs, but I don't think they're going to be very good either. Um, but other than that, you look at this conference, and it's tough. So, you know, as much as you look at the Oilers and say, all right, well, maybe with the coaching change, they're a little bit better this year. Well, look around. So is everybody else. Yeah. So it's hard. 
There's been a lot of talk about uh, free agents not wanting to come to play mm-hmm. in Edmonton. In your opinion, is it is this a make-or-break year for the Oilers to, to be able to, you know, if they get into the playoffs, is it going to become that much easier for them to attract talent? Yeah, I think it's just about winning. I mean, you, you, you go around to the different NHL cities and – the crappiest one maybe the crappiest city in north america and this is including places like tijuana mexico maybe the worst place in north america to live right now is detroit michigan right it does not i mean the the average median price of a home uh in a couple of the months over the last 12 has been less than ten thousand dollars i mean there is it's a it's a crappy place to live um but players want to go play there for two reasons. Because the ownership of that franchise, Mike and Marion Illich, have done a great job uh, treating, um, well, just establishing a uh, continuity within their franchise and showing that they're going to do whatever it takes to win, whether it's spending the money or assembling the best management team, all the rest of that sort of thing. And as a result of that, they win. And as a result of that, players want to go. Um with this franchise now being led by Daryl Cates, I certainly think they've got the ownership thing covered. I think when free agents, and you heard it in the first year that Daryl took over from guys like Marion Hosa and Yarmer Yager, um, I think the, the presence of the owner and the fact that he's got very deep pockets and is extremely generous and is a local guy and all the rest of it, um, I think that gets them something around the league. What they have to do now is win because regardless of it, you're going to have players, I guess, that'll go to Florida or go to Tampa Bay, or go to Phoenix, whether they're winning or not, just because of the lifestyle. Um, but for 80% of the league, you need to win um, in order for the real high-end talent to want to go play for you, unless you're throwing just stupid money at them. And as we saw with Hosa in that case, he still didn't get them. Um, so I think they just got to win. And in that respect, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing because how are you going to win if the best players don't come play for you? So they got to really make sure they draft and develop well. I think this is a big season. Obviously, if they get back in the playoffs, that's the first step. Do I think that makes it for them? No, I, I don't think so. I, I, I think players would look at a playoff appearance and when they're thinking about signing a contract, obviously view the franchise more favorably. But I think you need more of a pattern than that. I think you need more than one year in the playoffs. I think you need a bunch of years in the playoffs. I think you need a bunch of runs to uh, conference finals, et cetera, um, to really be one of those destinations when you've got a guy with a no-trade clause making a list of 10 teams to get in there making the playoffs once isn't going to do it. You need uh, a defined pattern, and given where they're at now, given where they've been the last three years, um, I-, I think that takes more than one season. So would making the playoffs help? Sure. Does it get them over the hump with the free agents? No, I don't think so. Is it really that uh, – is is the fan factor also a huge deal for players? Like the fact that they say Oiler fans are that much more passionate. Um, it's uh, – if you mess up, it's – you know, they can be pretty brutal. Does that – is that a big factor or does that factor in at all to a player's decision in your mind? I'm sure it does depending on the player. I mean, you look at Mike Comrie who just signed, and I think he kind of has a uh, – he, he really, that's a motivating factor for him. I think that's one of the reasons he's back is because the fans are so passionate. And I think he wants to prove to himself that he can get those 17,000 people cheering for him instead of booing him. And I don't think that's going to happen automatically. I think he comes back and I think he's taking it as a challenge within his game to get back into this city 
and to win these fans over again by playing well. So from that perspective, the fact that the fans are passionate um, and can be brutal but can also be obviously very, very loving if things are going well, I think that motivated a guy like Mike Comrie. Uh, The flip side, you could look at a guy, uh, I'm trying to come up with a name here that would be a good example of a player that just wants to... I'm having trouble picking one off the top of my head, but I mean, you, you, I'm, I'm sure there are a bunch of guys who just have no interest in playing in Canada, no interest in the fishbowl and having to talk to the media every day and are very happy playing with teams that have one beat right around the road covering them and that's it. And maybe they have to talk, you know, once every couple of weeks and there's really no scrutiny. And, you know, if they, you know, accidentally shoot the puck into their own net, there's not going to be, you know, vilification all over internet message boards and people yelling at them at a grocery store and all the rest of that. I think there's something to be said for a lot of guys for playing in a city where you can walk down the street and go out with your family and not have anybody know who you are, which I think is completely understandable. Um, So I think it factors in, certainly, but I would say an extremely high percentage, going back to my previous point, an extremely high percentage of players who play in the National Hockey League do it because they want to win a Stanley Cup. And if you were to get them to rank their goals, whether it's you know family situation, lifestyle, making money, uh, and winning, I think a lot of the guys would have winning, if not number one, number two on the list. So um, I think even if the fans have, I don't think they do, but let's say our fans have a negative reputation around the league because of their passion. I think if you build a winning team here, players will put up with that. Fair enough. Now, um... You mentioned uh, playing in Canada. It's been in the news that at least one eccentric billionaire is trying to buy himself a hockey team from the NHL to some mixed success. Um, do you? Would you like to see another team come to Canada? And uh, do you think it will happen? Um, I don't think it's going to happen this time around. Uh, it'll happen eventually. It's inevitable. It makes total sense. Um, here's where... Uh, people don't think it through though there you know people just say let's take florida and let's take nashville and let's take atlanta and those are all disasters of a franchise like they're just brutal franchises in terms of attendance and coverage in their market like that that franchise right now uh, in fort lauderdale florida is a massive failure and in Atlanta, it's a massive failure and obviously in phoenix it's a, a total gong show and a massive failure it could work. I mean, in Dallas, uh, the, not only the team, but the grassroots hockey programs in Texas now are phenomenal. California has gone over like gangbusters. And obviously with Wayne Gretzky, uh, that was a huge part of it. Um, there is arguably um, no funner place to watch an NHL game than San Jose. I mean, the fans there are fantastic. In Anaheim, being there for the playoff run a couple of years ago, that was a phenomenal place to watch a hockey game. Uh, and I think Los Angeles will be the same way when the Kings get back to you know some success on the ice. So it can work. But fans look at it and say, okay, let's take these brutal hockey markets in the Sun Belt and the States, and let's just move them to Canada. All right, move them where? Right? Southern Ontario. Could it work? Absolutely. 100%. Uh, you put a team there. It's a cash cow. It sells out every night. Gets all the coverage in the world. And a seventh Canadian NHL team in Southern Ontario works. Where else? Quebec City? Maybe. That's probably the second one. You could probably make it work in Quebec City. Halifax? No. Saskatoon? No. Is Winnipeg hungry for a franchise? Winnipeg is 
See, people that think Winnipeg can sustain hockey bother me. There is no more corporate support in Winnipeg now than there was back then. And uh, two things are working against them. They have uh, among the, the lowest average wage in Canada and also the highest taxes. So that's not good. The people there don't have a lot of money, and the people that do have money are cheap. So, I mean, this is this is a city that could not sell out, could not put 30,000 people in a stadium at an average ticket price that's a third of what the NHL would be for a CFL playoff game, right? So could they sustain hockey? Uh, would they love it? Absolutely they would. Would they be passionate about their team? Yes. Would they be able to make it work financially? No. It would not work financially in Winnipeg. So... I don't see it there. I don't see it in Victoria. Certainly don't see it in Saskatchewan. So, I mean, you're looking at maybe two markets. I think you could theoretically have eight teams in Canada, and to me that's the maximum. Um, Will there be a team there sooner rather than later? I think so. Uh, I would not be surprised at all to see the National Hockey League uh, win this auction in Phoenix, and obviously they're going to sell the team on their own, and I would imagine they'll give preference to trying to keep it in Phoenix. But it would not surprise me at some point if uh, they sold that team either directly to somebody who moved it right to Canada or to somebody who operated in Phoenix for a couple of years and then moved it to Canada. I think it just makes too much sense. And the Toronto Maple Leafs will uh, piss and moan and all the rest, but you cut them one big fat check and that'll all be fine. So... Eventually it happens, I think sooner rather than later. Um, would I like to see it happen? Absolutely. Will it happen? Absolutely. Um, but any more than one more, I think is I think that's pushing it. How did it work when uh, the Islanders came into the league? I'm, I imagine the Rangers kicked up a huge fuss complaining that they'd take the audience away from them. Well, in Buffalo for that matter yeah. too. Um, I don't know. I don't know enough about the history there, um, whether or not I would imagine that there were um, payments for infringement on territorial rights, I would think. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Toronto got something when Buffalo came in too, to go back. So uh, I would imagine that uh, that there were payments back then, but I don't I don't know off the top of my head. Have you been following the the Phoenix? Absolutely, yeah. So why won't the league move them? What's what's keeping the Coyotes there? Why is it good for the NHL to keep the? Coyotes See, I there? I think the NHL did a a pretty remarkable 180 right in the middle of this thing going back about two weeks where they started to, after deposition and court filing, after court filing and after deposition, um, where they said, we're committed to Glendale, we think it can work here, et cetera, et cetera. Then they came out and said, well, you know, if we can't restructure this lease, we might have to think about moving the team. And so... The NHL has changed, at the very least, softened its stance on keeping that franchise in Phoenix. The reason that preference will be given to keeping it there is Gary Bettman's ego. He's an extremely stubborn guy, and this was his vision. Hockey in these southern sunny markets in the States were his vision, and if it doesn't work, it reflects badly, not only on the league, but directly on him. So I think, you know, just in terms of optics they would love to see that stay in that market um, as long as they possibly can I don't think that's viable I think any agreement to sell the team to somebody in Phoenix is going to 
if not directly have a handshake deal under the table, going to have at least a wink and a nod saying, all right, you keep it here for whatever it is, a year, a couple of years, do it the right way, you could take it somewhere else. There's, I think it could have worked. I mean, Phoenix is, it's a sports town. You go down, it's a sports town, um, and they've got, uh, it's one of the top, I think it's one of the top five cities in terms of population in the States. If it's not top five, it's certainly top 10 in markets. There's a ton of people, ton of, uh, of surrounding metro area. Um, they put it in precisely the wrong place. Um, my parents own a house down there that's about 15 minutes from the rink, um, which is obviously great for people in that community. But the problem is most of the population base is centered about 45 minutes from the rink. And what people will say is, well... You know, the, the development is out there. The NFL stadium is right there. It's a lot easier to get an American audience to drive eight times a year for an NFL game than it is to get them to drive 41 times a year for NHL hockey. If they would have put this rink in Scottsdale or downtown Phoenix, I think it could have worked. I really think there are enough people down there, and I think it's enough of uh, when they got down there, they were in the playoffs uh, when they first got down there. Um, I think if they would have had uh, this new building in the right place, that it could have worked. Uh, but they're not going to move the building. They're not going to build a new building. So I think it's doomed to fail. And eventually, uh, and the NHL is going to hate it, uh, whether they do it themselves or somebody backdoors it like Balsley's trying to do, that franchise doesn't stay in Phoenix long term. Now, assuming that uh, Balsley doesn't manage to obtain the, uh, the Coyotes this time around, do you see it plausible that he might try to obtain another team somewhere down the road, perhaps to more success by not trying to sneak in through the back door, as you put it? Yeah, I don't think so. Not under this uh, leadership structure of the NHL. Obviously, if he doesn't get the franchise this time, the precedent will be set, and any time that he tries to backdoor it, again, the court's going to look at this case directly and not waste their time on it. Um and then moving forward, I don't think Gary Bettman and Bill Daly are in any position where they have interest in answering Jim Balsley's calls. Um, so, uh, you know, Balsley went hard at them. He went hard at uh, a guy like Eugene Melnick, uh, the owner of the Ottawa Senators this time around. I don't think he has very many friends left in the NHL hierarchy and, and Board of Governors. Um, they unanimously rejected him. So uh, I think backdoor is probably the only option for Jim Balsley. Um so no, sort of a huge shakeup in the board of governors. Yeah, I and that's the thing, right? If a new commissioner comes in and there's a bunch of turnover in the board of governors, right? And Jim Balsley really does a lot of work, you know, mending fences here. I just think right now, uh, Jim Balsley could stand as and knock on the front door for as long as he wanted. I don't think it gets opened by the NHL. Do you think that uh, if if eventually one of these Sun Belt teams gets pitched and moved to Canada? that that signals the end of Gary Bettman's reign of terror in the NHL? I don't know about that. Um, I think the next collective bargaining agreement in two years is going to be another pretty um, pretty significant milestone for him. The thing that you got to realize about Gary, um, he's been in you know, not constant turmoil, but he's been in a lot of turmoil under his tenure as commissioner. And most of the time he wins. You know, the last lockout, the NHL, that couldn't have gone better for the owners. With just on paper how it looked at the time, they got everything they wanted. The players took a year off and absolutely got screwed 
in in that deal. Now, let's not feel too bad for them because they're still doing better than they ever have. But in terms of what they wanted versus what the league wanted, the league kicked their ass. Um, this Phoenix thing, I fully expect Gary Bettman and the NHL to come out and top on, in court. So you go through that long saga, and ultimately Gary Bettman wins again. Um, he's been... Uh, very successful, I think, as commissioner. I mean, the the revenues continue to increase every year, and we'll see, you know, obviously what the projections end up being. And I guess the revenue of, of last year will be interesting because that's what's going to affect the the salary cap for next season. Um, but I think, by and large, he's at least from the board of governors standpoint, I think he's been very successful for them. So uh, unless they get hammered with the next collective bargaining agreement, I don't see one franchise moving as necessarily a bad thing. And let me throw another thing at you. Um, Let's say the NHL wins this auction and purchases the Phoenix Coyotes. Major League Baseball, Montreal Expos, they did the same thing. And they flipped it, turned it to the ownership group that now runs the Washington Nationals, and they made a ton of money on that. $140 million. Let's say they decide to flip it to a Canadian city. NHL team at a Canadian city is probably coming with at a price tag of well north of $300 million. So if Gary Bettman says, look, does it look great that this Phoenix thing didn't work? No, obviously it doesn't. doesn't look quite great that we're moving a team. But here's $160 million, and we'll split it 30 ways. And, uh, you know, let's see if, you know, $5 million a team makes it a little bit easier on you. So um, whenever this, whenever one of these franchises moves... Uh, it's going to be good for the league uh, financially, whether the NHL is directly making money or whether it's another team that goes from receiving revenue sharing to putting into revenue sharing. Um, it won't look great optically, but financially, when one of these teams does end up moving, still ends up being good for the league. So I don't think it kills Gary Bettman. Everything just keeps coming up, Gary. Yeah, the embattled NHL commissioner, the diminutive NHL commissioner. He's a small man. Have you actually met him? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's not an imposing figure by any stretch of the imagination, and he is one of the best guys I've ever met at being able to talk without saying a damn thing. <laughs> He'd be a great like, politician. Like, I I did a. I remember having him on. Might have even been early this past season, and it was an intermission interview, and those are seven minutes, and I I think I might have asked him two questions. And I had a list of stuff that I wanted to get to, and it was basically a filibuster. That's what he he knew there were issues, and he basically just filibustered <laughs> until I didn't have any time left. So wow, so you've I mean he's, he's a tough guy to talk to, I guess, when you have something to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Who are some of the more difficult uh, personalities in hockey that you've had to contend with on the air? Difficult. Um, Robin Regeer. Oh yeah, is one. There was. Uh, a slight incident with Robin, and in hindsight, I probably could have handled it better, but it was a couple of years ago when there were a couple of games where he was taking shots at Alex Hemsky and one where hit him from behind in the end boards, and it was a particularly nasty play. So my line of questioning when they were in for a game later in the season was, you know, along the lines of going after the other team's skilled players. Um, and, you know, I said, you know, when you look at a guy like Alex Hemsky, you're trying to play hard against him do you go after him a little bit more than you know say the average player on a team and he just looked at me and said well that's obvious I said well the point of what we do here is not to get me to say it the point of what we're doing here is to get you to say it 
So if it's obvious, if you could just, you know, go ahead and say, so he wasn't very happy with that. And then we went on and on and on. And he eventually just looked at me and said, what are you trying to get at here? I said, well, I guess if you want me to be blunt, um, I think you've been playing him dirty. And at that point, the, the Flames PR guy stepped in and I think maybe saved me a punch in the face at that point. Yikes. So then, all of course, every time he comes back, I've got to go in and talk to him because if I don't, I'm a wuss, right? So um, there are there are a few guys around the league, but most of the players are sensational. I, I mean, people say it, that hockey players are a different breed. It, it is true. Um, not, not very many guys that I've had that experience with and... Um, you, unless it's after a really bad loss and you're, you're really hammering a guy, then you're, you're kind of asking for it. But I've had, you know, 99.9% positive experiences. Um, just trying to think, uh, I don't think I've ever had, uh, ever had a manager be tough to talk to. Or, yeah. I was going to ask you if, Mc, if McTavish ever said anything snarky to you. Uh, you know what? Um, the first, the first time I ever interviewed Craig McTavish. And I was just, at that point, just a young pup, and I hadn't been introduced to him yet, so he had no idea who I was. And it was after a game where they got hammered. I think it was by Detroit. And Brad Winchester, this is what I came up with to ask him, which is just a terrible question. Brad Winchester played 26 seconds that night, and we were doing the scrum. This is before the Oilers renovated the locker room, so we're doing the scrum, and it ends up just being me and Terry Jones. And fine, because I waited, I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to jump in ahead of, you know, Jim Matheson and ask a question. I was going to wait for everybody to finish. It was my first time. So uh, I asked Craig McTavish, so uh, coach, um, Brad Winchester, only 26 seconds tonight. Can you just talk about his game? And he looked at me. And then he looked at Terry and said, go ahead, Jonesy. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. So at that point in time, it was like the most mortifying thing ever. It's like, oh, God. And that's live, right? We were doing, we were taking that live on a wireless mic. So at that point in time, at that, I had to throw it back up to Morley Scott. And it's just like, so I hung in there for Jonesy's question and the answer and then threw it back up to Morley and was like, oh, my God. That just went terrible. Yeah. So um, other than that, no. Um, I mean, Mac, Mac liked to pick on, um, obviously had a, a pretty well-publicized run-in with Ryan Rashog at the beginning of last year. Uh, from TSN, um, and he kind of liked to pick on uh, Dave Mitchell of, of CTV Sports, too, and, you know, they had a nice little back and forth. That was always a, a, a very amicable thing, but uh, he was kind of the, not the whipping boy for Craig McTavish because that makes it sound like it was serious, but um, he, he was a very snarky guy, but never, uh, you know, with the exception of that once with me. Which player that, which player you go to to get, you know, good quotes or, or which player you just enjoy talking to is a good talker. There are a bunch of guys. Uh, they actually traded one this off season. Kyle Brodziak was always great for an honest quote after a tough loss. When I needed a guy to say, we played like crap or I sucked and just have that raw honesty, um, and, and really just think without speaking. Uh, Brody was that guy. Um, and it'll be, unfortunate from my perspective um and and i always love talking to him he sat next to tom gilbert in the dressing room and we'd get into arguments i'd be saying you know i'd go and and kind of just try to kick start them and say you know you guys are I, I remember once last year you guys are so terrible in face-offs could you line up for a draw and just willingly lose it and just you know drop a system and a formation where you plan to lose 
and then just go from there. Drop the puck and then play it like you've already lost the draw. And Tom Gilbert and Kyle Brodziak got into the big argument over on that, and they're trying to demonstrate for me on the whiteboard and with all the markers. And they have at the front of the dressing room, they have little magnets with, you know, F1 and D1 and all that. So they're trying to show me what and have the argument there. So Brodziak was really good. Uh, Tom Gilbert, I mentioned, is another guy who, um, in terms of guy, I just really enjoy talking to. Um, we've got a lot in common. He's, you know, very, very well spoken and, and a very thoughtful guy. Um, Jason Strudwick is another one who is again if you need to go to somebody after a tough loss there's the comfortability there um and a guy who when it comes to issues of the game you know there was an incident last year where um that uh, senior league fighter out in ontario died on the ice uh, well not because of a fight anyway he hit his head he wasn't wearing a helmet and, and he died after and there was a, the, the talk about fighting and i can remember jason strudwick giving me i think three or four minutes without interruption on how ridiculous it was that people were paying attention to this because it's happened once in however many years and we got guys constantly being paralyzed from hits from behind and if you want to talk about something that's dangerous in the game talk about how there's still so much disrespect in the game that guys are are still hitting other players from behind so uh jason's really good for stuff like that um sheldon surrey steve steos sean horkoff all guys who are around after the game um you know, is it pleasant to talk to them after a tough loss? No, but they'll stand there and, and wait for you to talk. Um, Ethan Morrow's great. Uh, and then obviously for me, a um, little bit of a, a, a more unique relationship, I think, maybe than some guys with the younger players just because of, of the age thing. Yeah. Um, so I really do enjoy sitting and, and BSing with Sam Gagne and Andrew Cogliano and, and guys like that too. So um, you go around the room and you're just there so much that there's not, you know, by you know once you get back into the swing of things after a couple of weeks there's nobody that you feel uncomfortable with in the room um so i mean it's there are guys that are better quotes than others and, and it's still a pretty good room for that but you know i i don't think there's you know a journalist that covers the team on a regular basis that is scared or apprehensive to talk to anybody you just you're around so often you know you know they're doing a job and they know you're doing a job and and that's the relationship uh, you mentioned something a moment ago. I'm going to go back to it. You mentioned disrespect in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, is hockey a game of sour grapes and bad blood? Is there a lot of uh, are there a lot of clashing egos and uh, like blacklists and uh, and people who just you know cannot work together on the same team? Is is this a league where there's that kind of uh, those kind of problems? I don't I I don't think it's that. Um, I think by and large, <clears throat> if you know, take a guy like Claude Lemieux as an example, who 29 teams hated to play against, and he would be out and he would chirp you and he would, you know, stick you in the back of the leg. But if you got traded to your team, it was great to have Claude Lemieux on your team, yeah. right? Ian LaPerriere is another guy. Ian LaPerriere might be the best current example in the National Hockey League of a guy that, um, or did he trying to think he might have retired something happened with Ian LaPerry here in the offseason I don't know where he ended up going I something in my head is telling me he retired and then I, I don't think he's that old but anyway Ian LaPerry is a guy great great teammate on the ice total prick like to be total prick on the ice um so I I think from that perspective when guys get traded that you've had run-ins with I, I mean they're all men right we you know um but when you talk about during the season 
uh, teams having bad blood against each other, players having bad blood. Absolutely, there is. I mean, that's that fuels a lot of it. That fuels a lot of rivalry. Um, you know, you look at, at Vancouver and Edmonton right now. They've had bad blood in in their games. You know, for for a couple of years now. And you go back to um, the end of the uh, 07 08 season when you know Sam Gagne's in a fight and they have the line brawl there in Vancouver and Jared Stoll's involved. And, you know, that's just a, a rivalry that's become very heated. And, you know, that's just because of, I mean, first of all, you play them so much and you just, you, 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 whether it's chirping on the ice or whether it's a guy going around you once and you don't want to let it happen again. Um, yeah, the, the, the bad blood in the NHL from team to team, I think, is fueled. But um, in terms of, you know, off the ice when the players are just the players and when the players get traded and stuff, I don't think. I don't think there are very many players in the league that would be unwelcome in most dressing rooms. There are a couple, but I don't think there are very many. What about among uh, among you local uh, reporters and journalists and, and guys like yourself? Like, uh, there's always obviously a fight to get the scoop or mm-hmm. to get the right qu- the best quote. But by and large, you guys get along. Or are there some? There must be rivalries there. Tell yeah, us about the, that. Obviously, rivalries. Absolutely, there are. Um, and as you mentioned, particularly in this day and age where all I need to do now to get the scoop is pull out my cell phone and send a tweet, right? Which is like instant, right? The minute, you know, Pat Quinn can be telling me something, I can be typing it as he's saying it and have the scoop right away, right? It's not like you have to wait for my show to start or the newspaper to be printed in the morning. So um, getting the scoop is, is, obviously it's, it's a race, but by and large, we get along. Um, I don't know what the perception is, but, you know, Gene Principe, Ryan Rashog, right? Um, you know, that's maybe not a great example because I don't think they hang out very much away from the rink, but perfectly amicable relationship. They two competing networks. Um, Joanne Ireland and Rob Tichkowski are, um, I, I won't speak for them, but uh, my uh, impression is that they're quite close. Um, I certainly get along well with, most everybody, I mean, like anything else, are going to be guys that you work with or guys that are around that you don't see eye to eye with or rub you the wrong way. But um, no, I mean, as a group, and there are, I mean, there are a bunch of us that are down there on a regular basis. Um, it, why not just make it pleasant? I mean, why make it difficult? Yeah. I mean, we're around each other so many hours, um, you know, early mornings, late nights, all the rest of it. You're just around each other so much that. If you were, you know, if you had your back up and you were just trying to keep it, just it wouldn't work. So obviously there, like I said, there are examples where, where the relationships aren't great, but um, that's just the way it is. The other thing that I do want to mention there on the subject of the scoop, um, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I don't want to have the scoop. I want to have everything first, obviously, just because in a perfect world, that's the way it would be. And, and you would be, you know, the, the sole source or one of the top sources anyway of information. But I really think in this day and age, um, it travels so fast um, that I think it's a lot more about how you handle it once it's out. Let's take, for example, um, the other radio station in town that covers sports. Let's say the Oilers trade Alishemsky. And let's say they have it first. I'm going to have it two minutes later. So for 99% of the people that turn their radio on for coverage, they're going to have no idea 
who put that on first. Mm-hmm. It's going to be so fast now. If TSN puts it up, Sportsnet has it 60 seconds later. If yeah. TSN puts it up, I've got it 60 seconds later. And it's about how you go with your coverage after the story because uh, in this day, it's just it's out there and it travels so fast and there's so, so many different mediums um, that everybody almost gets it at the same time and then it's about what you do with it. And I know the newspaper writers uh, around the league have become a little bit frustrated these days at their difficulty now in, in getting a scoop. And there's been discussions of having separate availability time for newspaper writers and stuff like that just because, you know, let's take the the interviews of the morning of the postgame show. Uh, people can just go to the websites. People can go to our website. People can go to the Oilers' website. They don't need to read the newspaper. They can hear the six minutes for themselves 12 hours earlier if they want to. Um, but my contention to them has always been, so write better, right? Give me a better story. Um, make it more compelling for me to read your story than it is for me to listen to five minutes of Kyle Brodziak. Tell me a better story. And that's what you can do. And that's what I have to do. Um, I need to be able to to weave it better so that people find some value in listening to my show instead of just listening to the raw information because that's all readily available now. Um, all of the raw data, it's just like being in the room with all of the access now that you can find with the internet and with the way that the NHL has structured their web content now. You can get so much that if I'm not doing my job entertaining you, you don't need me anymore, and you don't need that newspaper. Yeah. So there's a lot better, fo- a lot more focus on on what you do with the story and what you do with the content than having that scoop or having the content. Yeah, and I think obviously it's you know having the scoop is a nice to have, but like you said, people forget about it nearly immediately. It is the analysis that you provide, but I would argue still the journalists do. I mean, you you like you said, you can pick up your phone and give. Uh, you know, Kyle Brodziak a call if he were still playing here or, or whatever, you know, you, you do have that access and you're right. It really is about creating or finding that story detail that no one else, it's all about the angles, right? Yep. That's what they always say. It's all about the angles. Yep. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, this, this space has been invaded by, you know, other writers, bloggers, this kind of thing. It's, it's really, it's, it's getting tight. The, the one thing that I will say too is, you know, even though, even though you, you would love to have the scoop and you want to be out in front of it, um, there's such a rat race to get it now um, that, I mean, the example that people would be most familiar with would be the Danny Heatley thing where there were a bunch of different outlets, including a national two national TV networks, that got it wrong. Yeah. Um, there's such a rat race to get it that you got to be real careful now. And that, I think... Um, looks really bad um getting the scoop looks good but for a little bit as you mentioned and then that wears off if you get something pretty major wrong yeah uh i think that i think that that hangs on you for a little bit more so that's the thing that um that i really really caution myself against and because it's so easy you know for somebody even now to again with the twitter thing somebody to tell me something and to just put it out there um but i i gotta really make very sure that 
I don't just do that and that I'm doing my due diligence and that I'm not being too eager with something because that's the last thing that you want to do is, is to start being wrong about stuff and then your credibility gets shot and it's just uh, that's tough to, tough to recover from. Speaking of credibility being shot, um, we're just running out of time, so uh, if you wanted to do your Fast 15 I do. with Mr. Dan Tenser, I do. that should certainly take care of any uh, credibility that he had left. Dan, I'm sure that you've listened to every single one of the podcasts Absolutely, that we produce. Absolutely, I have, yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Are you ready for the Fast 15? Okay, I am ready, and I will make this declaration going in that I will not pass. Okay. I will answer all 15 of these. Sounds right. good. That's, that Has anybody like answered all 15 of them yet? I think Peter did last time. Last time, yeah. So if you can do it faster than him, you win. So do I have to be, is, is brevity the goal here? Brevity, brevity is, is the, goal. the goal. All right, here we go. Fast 15, first question, your favorite food? Uh, lobster. Your favorite color? Uh, blue. Mac, PC, or Linux? PC. Uh, dogs or cats? Dogs. Favorite holiday? Um, Las Vegas. Favorite sport? Hockey. Favorite pastime? Golf. Favorite music at this particular moment? Uh, let's go ahead and say Kings of Leon. Favorite movie? Uh, traffic. Favorite movie or a movie that you dislike a great deal but everyone else seems to like? I can't remember the name of it. It was uh, Clint Eastwood, the one that he just did. Oh, Get that, Off My Lawn or yeah, whatever? Yeah, whatever. He was he was Walter <laughs> Mathau from Dennis the Menace, I thought, that in that called? movie. Uh, uh, it had Asian people in it. Yes. yes. And, it was, and now that I've been yes. put on the spot, I, I can't, can't remember, remember it. Fine. Whatever we, that we was. We know what you're talking about. Uh, a, f- a movie that you like and are ashamed to like. Oh, God. Um, you know what? There's <laughs> there's a movie. I'm sure nobody's seen it. It's uh, a Mandy Moore movie uh, <laughs> called American <laughs> Dreams. That, I, that is acceptable. American <laughs> Dreams with a Z. All right. Uh, your proudest moment. Gran Torino. That's Gran right, Torino. Gran Torino, yes. Your proudest moment. Um, probably the day that uh, that uh, I signed on as host of the show at 20 years of age. Uh, your least proud moment. <laughs> you oh mentioned boy. Las Vegas. D- d- does, this have to be, does this have to be just work or can this be personal it too? Can, it can be yeah, anything there, like. there was a night in Las Vegas where, um, work won't like me telling this story, but there was a night in Las Vegas where our plane landed at 9 o'clock and I was uh, face down, not in my bed, but on the floor beside my bed by 11 <laughs> o'clock at night. And I was uh, uh, barely able to get up in time to go see David Copperfield the next night. So it was just about 24 hours of being completely messed up. Well done, well done. So now we're on to our two wild card questions. What is your least favorite sport and why? Soccer, because it's friggin' boring and low scoring and slow. There you go. And your second wild card question, what would you be doing if you weren't working in this industry? Uh, I'd probably still be at university. Uh, I did, uh, before I took the job full-time, I was doing uh, political science at the U of A. I got through two years of that, and uh, after my third year of poli-sci, the uh, plan was to write the entrance exam to go into law school, so I would probably be there. Wow. Dan Tenser, lawyer. Ooh, dangerous. There you go. All right, who is going to be coming down to the Unknown Studio next time? A fellow by the name of Brent Jans, whom I believe you know. I do. We'll be having Brent in the in the studio to talk about Pure Speculation, a gigantic nerd festival taking place at the beginning of October. Yes, we are. All right. Thank you once again, Dan, for taking your time out of your busy schedule. It's been my pleasure, guys. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Enjoy the season, my friend. Yes. And hopefully, hopefully, uh, that's, hopefully that's you're... up to them, I guess. Yes. I will say one thing. When Going back to that question, I've been thinking about it in my head about whether I get excited or not. Um, 
people, and, and this affects me in personal relationships, I go back to that first year that I covered the team 06-07 when they lost whatever it was, 18 of the last 20 games. When you go to work every day and the mood is just so somber and nobody wants to be there and everybody just wants it to be over with, when that's you know for 14 hours a day, when that's when you're around and the team's losing and people are calling in and they're upset and the team's upset, nobody wants to do it, that it's hard to just let that go and leave it at work and go home and be north. So um, I do find being around them so much that um, the mood of the team, unless I struggle really with it to turn it around, the mood of the team a lot of times ends up being my mood. So it does when you're there so often, you, that energy really, really does affect you. So you are excited. Well, <laughs> I, I, I guess the answer to that would be I'm excited if they're excited, Fair I guess enough. would be the logic. So right there you go. Well, thanks very much, Dan. My All pleasure. Right. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, Episode 7. Our guest, Dan Tenser, our topic, hockey. Pre-production by Adam Rosenhart. Post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. seventh episode and i would not have given us good odds for that really yeah man i believed in us the whole time i didn't i thought we would do like three episodes and have been like yeah it's too much work mm.